welcome to Catholic Confessions. Hello, today's podcast is titled Things to Know About Christmas. Okay, so the Christmas season is probably the only time in the year when we have this very interesting mix of sacred and secular sort of um, traditions. They're so closely intertwined that sometimes it can be a bit confusing for those of us who celebrate Christmas to differentiate between these two. Today, I have with me my friend from university, Keenan. So Keenan is a recent graduate of the Augustine Institute. He got his uh, master's in theology from there. So we take it that he's more informed than the average Catholic about theology. So we are here to just highlight some things about Christmas that you may or may not be aware of. I think beyond the, the term, it's simply just a shorthand of saying the Mass of Christ. Christmas is the Mass of Christ. It's like we may not celebrate in Singapore, but the, the words like Michael Mass and Candle Mass, these are Masses. Uh, like Michael Mass is the Mass for the Archangels, you know, so it celebrates St. Michael. I'm not too sure about this, but I think it comes from an older time when people maybe didn't want to speak so much or it was a shorthand way of just saying uh, the Mass of Christ because Christmas is a big feast and celebration about Jesus himself, right? It's a big uh, celebration. We welcome Christ. This is the beginning of Christ saving mission and then uh, to begin and start the church so it's a big a big thing for us okay so for the date of Christmas itself there is actually a bit of a contention about whether 25th of December is the actual date of his birth some will insist that it is it has to be while others um, say that it's not and it's actually a, a pagan feast. How should we, as interested Catholics and Christians, what should we make of this? Oh, okay. I, I think first, uh, the first point, the church is, doesn't dogmatically define 25th December as uh, Jesus' birthday. So good Catholics can uh, disagree with this. You know, like you can do some uh, scripture scholarship or you can do some uh, research and you might come up with a different date. Uh, early in the church, we are different saints with uh, different uh, projections. Like I think St. Clement of Alexandria proposed November 18th, right? Uh, St. Mm-hmm. Augustine, I think, supported December mm-hmm. uh, 25th. So you had different people uh, in the early church who had uh, different proposing different dates. And the church kind of picks this as the date, but it doesn't say, oh, if you don't believe it's 25th December, you, you know, it's a mortal sin or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's actually pretty much fine. Uh, I think the the whole idea of people contradicting 25th December comes uh, from a more modern push to try to push God out of the picture, try to uh, take away a Christ significance or to kind of minimize Christianity. Uh, like like I mean, uh, if we are talking about the whole pagan feast things. There are two pagan feasts that seem to be highlighted most of the time as being competitors of Christmas. One is Saturnalia, and the other one is uh, Sol Invictus. Right. So Saturnalia is a so- kind of a winter solstice festival in uh, uh, in the Greek and Roman times, and. It seems from uh, research that uh, the Saturnalia seems to fall within the 17th and then of December and then got extended to about 22nd or 23rd December. So uh, it doesn't seem to coincide at all with 25th. And I mean, if there are people claiming that uh, Christians co-opted a pagan feast and that's it, wouldn't it make sense for us to co-opt it on the same date? 
mm-hmm. means we would uh, we would want to supplant it by putting it on the same date. The fact that they're not on the same date uh, kind of throws that theory out the window a bit, right? Another good point is the question is, so what if it is? Let's imagine intention was to supplant some sort of pagan feast. That's fine. Christianity has been doing that. Uh, we have been taking uh, what was good about non-Christian things because we, at, at the end of the day, believe uh, Christ is truth. And I mean, anything true, good, and beautiful is of God. And we take it. So like for us as Chinese, right? We celebrate Chinese New Year. We Chinese New Year, what's good about Chinese New Year is wishing each other prosperity, the family values. These are things we take and we, we celebrate. We don't, uh, nobody, you know, kind of accuses us of trying to uh, remove Chinese-ness from from China or something like that, right? So I think the whole idea of a pagan festival being uh, supplanted by a Christian one is a good thing, actually. And I think it's something you should be proud of if it actually happened. But in this case for Saturnalia, I don't think it did. The mm. second one that people seem to talk about is Saul Invictus, the uh, Feast of the Unconquerable Sun. Okay, I say feast because mm. it's very Catholic, but there's some sort of uh, festival for the Romans. And this seems to be on the 25th of uh, December. It does seem to fall on the 25th of December. But we seem to have this reference only in the Antiquities document called the Calendar or the Chronology of 374. This document is a list of like events or festivals and dates from uh, the year 374. So that's the earliest reference we have to this kind of festival of Saul Invictus. It comes across kind of late, right? Because some of the earliest references of Christmas comes before that, that we have, I think, from Pope, sorry, I'm going to butcher his name, but it's Hero something, H-I-E-R-O something, something. And his he comes from the second century and already he mentions 25th December in his documents. Uh, and so we seem to have a history of Christmas first. And 374 already, Christianity is an accepted religion in the Roman Empire. So uh, the question would be who influenced who, right? Is it possible that actually 25th December, uh, the Feast of uh, Christmas, influences the Festival of the Unconquerable Sun? Sounds very much plausible, right? So then then again, we come back to the whole point. Even if, let's say, Saul Invictus was first, no issues if Christianity tries mm. to supplant a pagan religion. Mm. Okay. So the thing is, in spite of this uh, sort of uncertainty regarding the date, it doesn't mean that the celebration is not um, valid because there's a deep, much deeper meaning to it rather than just the date itself. Okay, so, and I mean, the whole point is that Christ, one thing we all cannot argue about is Christ did come down to earth the second person of the trinity was born as a man and he was born in the world and he came and he you know died for our sins and that one no one can dispute right so celebrating his coming is an important thing i think we should like celebrate it but the date like you say the date is not a key uh, fixture the fact Mm. that he did come down is the important thing yes that's what we're celebrating okay so Moving on to uh, what is mentioned in scripture in the form of what we call the infancy narratives. Okay, it's only found in two Gospels, Matthew and Luke. And interestingly, it, if you actually read and compare both passages, it actually describes somewhat different events okay, that happened to Mary and Joseph um, yeah, during the time um, shortly before Jesus was born. Again, it could be a confusing thing 
because then uh, you know does this mean that it's historically not accurate or you know what happens with the chronology of the whole thing the, some of the contradictions come more or less about with the fact where is the Holy Family? In Matthew's Gospel, we are given the impression that the Holy Family starts off in Bethlehem and then they kind of make their way to Egypt. Then they go to Nazareth. So, you know, from Bethlehem to Egypt and then after Herod dies, they return back to uh, Nazareth. Uh, whereas for uh, Luke's Gospel, we are given uh, the indication that they start in Nazareth they go to Bethlehem and then they come back to Nazareth. There's no mention of Egypt. There's no mention of running away or anything like that. You know, they do seem to spend some time in Bethlehem before they return to uh, Nazareth. So how do we put this in? Because, I mean, essentially, Egypt is a big part, right? If Jesus does go to Egypt for a big chunk of his life and you don't mention it, it's a bit odd. I think to understand our modern-day sensibilities of recording history versus the ancient times is very different. We we like pictures, we like videos now, you know, where we capture moment-by-moment moment images and then, then we go through it and then we realise, hey, okay, these are, these are things, uh, every single point of the person's life is clocked. But the uh, gospel writers were trying to tell a story. They were trying to tell important part of who Jesus is and get that across to the audience. They weren't so much concerned about uh, each and every single detail. So uh, leaving out pieces of the, the life of Christ is uh, kind of possible because they did it to cater to a particular audience. And we even see that John, right? John says that if everything that uh, was done by Jesus was recorded, it would fill all the books in the world, right? So this, uh, they probably did leave out some things. But we can see how it can work. They started in Nazareth. If we try to gel the two together, they started in Nazareth. They went to Bethlehem. They stayed in Bethlehem, right? Then that's where the presentation of the Lord, the circumcision of the Lord happened. And then they ran to Egypt and then they returned to Nazareth. Without actually needing even the massage, the passages right we could just see how it could fit together and i, I mean we get that portrayal pretty much in modern day movies or, or mm. uh, animations about the life of christ it's quite easy to see yeah mm. okay so moving um a bit further into the infancy narratives um, past jesus's birth to the wise men so we have the the very well-known uh, tale of the star sort of leading the wise men to jesus but there is there's something about this, right, that might not be what it appears in scripture. I mean, the, again, a lot of this uh, is not uh, fixed down by the church and there's no doctrine uh, that's described that ties us to a particular interpretation. So we are free to believe that the star is some sort of uh, supernatural occurrence, uh, meaning some sort of angel who's, you know, appearing as a star, leading the wise men to Jesus. Because, I mean, if you think about it and you read it, how many uh, how many uh, stars actually bring you to a particular location and helps you find it? But there's also some uh, leeway uh, and some possibility for people to uh, feel the star is just a star. Maybe a natural mm. occurrence that has helped to guide uh, the wise men. Then one of the reasons why people can uh, attribute that, especially if you're speaking to a person who is very uh, wary about supernatural things, you can always uh, come from this point of view. And that, see, the star 
it's like how we would use, like how sailors would use the stars in uh, older times to guide their, how they sail, you know, give them direction. The stars are being described as providing direction because if they didn't need the star, if the star was really leading them each step of the way, mm. the wow. wise men wouldn't have needed to go to Herod to ask where mm. the, the king would be born, right? So they remember the one part is that they do to go to Herod and they ask him and then the people all discuss and they tell the wise men that they are, he will be born in Bethlehem because that is what scripture says. So if the star was so clear and so obvious, right, there wouldn't need mm. for that detour. Okay, it mm. wouldn't need for them to eh, go to this and see that it would have gone straight to Bethlehem. But the fact that they needed to go this detour is uh, one indication. It also indicates in the gospel that when they saw the star, they were exceedingly happy, right? They were mm. exceedingly joyful. If they were following the star all the way, I don't think there would be a uh, need to be joyful when they see it because mm. you were seeing it the whole time. So it probably was more of a sign, right? Something natural in the sky had happened. Uh, there was a particular brighter star that seemed to be guiding them in a certain direction. They followed it. You know, when they were off course a bit, they saw it again. They were, you know, they were guided to this particular place. And, uh, you know, then that brought them great joy. La. So I think the aspect of how the, the star can be seen also is possible. You know, so the star could be supernatural. The star could be simply natural. I mean, and you can read more about that also in uh, Pope Benedict the sixteen. Uh, Jesus mm. of Nazareth, the infancy narratives mm. book. I think he does describe a bit about how we can see and understand the stars. And I think it's also it's a nice thing to talk about the wise men, especially uh, for uh, most of us who are not uh, Jewish people, right? The wise men were uh, people from the East, meaning they were mm. non-Jews. Uh, they might be Persians or uh, one of the theories also they are Nabataeans, right? The people who came from the Jordan area. So they were definitely non-Jews. And this is a, it's a nice, uh, important aspect of how God, even at the point of his birth, right? His message of salvation went out to all the world, right? This is mm, a natural yeah. occurrence. If you think of it as a natural occurrence, this natural occurrence was visible to many people. And three uh, wise men, and they, they, I mean, one of the reasons why they're called wise is because they picked up on this uh, mm. special significance. The possibility is that dabblers of the occult, you know, mm. so they were astrologers, they were magicians of sort who were reading the stars and the skies for mm. special significant things, and they saw this, and it in through their astrology and all, they realized that this was a sign of a of a great change, a new birth of a king into the world, and they picked up mm. on this. So I mean, they picked up means many people could see the star and its possibility, and they are wise because they realized the significance and the need to go and mm. to engage uh, this this new king la. So for ourselves, I think the the question to ask ourselves is how wise are we? You know, mm. are we looking at the are we looking at the right things? Are we guided by God to find Him? You know, in the in the modern age, I think that's very uh, lost, uh, especially in Christmas now, right? Where it's more commercialized mm. than it is uh, Christ centered, right? We find follow the wrong star. We might follow the star to Takashimaya or something like that, mm. and you know, end up buying rather than giving. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess because of the way uh, the culture has developed such that with, with the commercialized culture and everything that maybe people feel that, oh, they ought to feel the so-called joy of like buying gifts and giving gifts and all that. But 
that only deviates from the actual point of Christmas. Yeah. And I, I think that Christmas is a period of giving, but it's not, wow, I have to go to spend hundreds of dollars to buy mm. things for people. Uh, you know, uh, the gift, small, simple gifts. And if your friends or your family are the kind who need uh, hundreds of dollars, right, then I think you might want to educate them a bit. Like the, whole, <laughs> the whole idea yeah. of uh, gift giving in uh, Christianity is really about giving the gift of Christ. And I think, uh, not, I'm not saying don't give any physical gifts, but that is not our motive, right? Our motive is really giving Christ. I mean, if your family celebrates Christmas but doesn't go for Mass, I mean, then that's uh, something to think about because mm. the greatest gift happening on Christmas uh, Day and we don't receive that gift in the Eucharist, I think it's something that we are missing in our faith. Yeah, so it, it tells us also a bit how off course we are from maybe the true significance. If it's a choice not to, then, you know, that may maybe make the choice today to kind of bring people and bring your family for Mass instead. Mm. So to sort of sum, sum up what you just said, is about um, firstly being able to perceive Christ and also um, to give of ourselves and to give Christ to others during this time. Okay, so we were talking about the wise men and something that I kind of learned, because so, I also tried to read out a bit about uh, Christmas, it's interesting that in the um, in scripture, they actually did not mention the actual number of uh, wise men. They only mentioned that the three gifts were presented. So maybe we could sort of like move into the scene that we're also familiar with, with like sheep and shepherds and wise men uh, surrounding Jesus, the ba- the baby, you know. Yep, the three wise men come from the traditional three gifts, right? Frankincense, gold, and myrrh. And we know uh, the uh, spiritual significance of them is one is gold, it represents Christ's kingship, right? Uh, frankincense represents Christ's priesthood, his role as high priest, because we, where else do we find most incense in the church, you know, or in the temple at that time? And myrrh is the embalming, uh, mm. embalming kind of uh, material. So it's also at the point of his birth, right? The cross overshadows him. Means, you know, already we are getting a sense that Christ has to die for us. I mean, so even then, I mean, the gifts are significant in itself. But true, there, there could have been much more. We don't know. The scripture doesn't say. The activity store, uh, set we have nowadays, I think uh, it's a wonderful invention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it... I think the, uh, that coming to that way, you mentioned about the, you know, how we have the nativity set today. I mean, it comes from St. Francis. I mean, he was the first person to kind of set up this nativity set, oh, a life-size okay. one, right? So it's not something that comes from tradition or comes from very early on. He was the first, uh, I think, Greccio in, uh, in the community started Greccio there. He gathered the people and his friars and they set up a kind of life-size nativity and they got animals around and, uh, you know, it's all the significance <laughs> to come. Uh, the ox and the ass are two normally two animals that appear. Mm. So if your activity set doesn't have an ox and an ass, you need to go and get one. All right, because these are extra scriptural references. Yeah. Ah, okay, okay, I I see. And also as to the because the scene normally takes place in a in a stable, and because the word also the word manger appears a lot in even Christmas hymns and 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 all that. So I I think personally I got a bit confused between manger and stable and was it really that like rustic in, in the sense that they, they had to go to a stable where all the animals were maybe let me start with the point i like i like the confusion between stable manger all of this so jesus was laid in a manger 
Uh, and that's important eh? because that's stated in scripture so it's inerrant so we know for a fact. Many times we think manger is a place but actually a manger is a thing that animals eat out of, right? So if we if you go to a farm or something and then you know, they pour food into a trowel or something, that is mm. called a manger. And mm. that's, uh, that's uh, where Jesus was laid in. So I mean, I mean, we can see this from things like French, uh, the French word for eat is man, manger, I think if I'm not wrong, which is actually spelled as manger in English, M-A-N-G-E-R. So we can see the roots of the word for to eat, right? So mm. it's an invitation to eat. And it's very significant for us. We mm, mentioned earlier yeah. about his death and passion, right? Jesus already was presented as food, you know, close inverted commas. Already a shadow of the Eucharist is already uh, cast on him mm. also. So Jesus is presented as something to eat, right, in that sense. And I think that's a real good uh, loving uh, connection as to what we have been saying so far about going to church for the Eucharist, you know, the sacrifice of the Mass or so. These are all part of the Christmas story and this is how we see our faith as a continuous mm. whole. It's not just Jesus' birth we celebrate but it's at his birth already we see the signs of the Eucharist, we see the signs of his cross, passion, death and resurrection. Mm. All of this, you know, is coming out for us and it's an important aspect of it. Uh, mm. For the place itself, uh, it says that uh, uh, there was no place for them in the inn, right? So the inn, the word they in has been translated uh uh, sometimes it can be mean in, it can also be translated as to building or mm, accommodation yeah. mm. or household. Mm. So some theories are that it's not so much an in, but in the sense that there is no place for them in the house. Yeah. Uh, so Joseph come from, comes from Bethlehem, right? So he probably has family in Bethlehem. And because of the census, a lot of people have returned back from all over. And one idea which comes out is that the, basically everybody's now at this house. La, and it's like Chinese New Year gathering at uh, one of our places. It's just sometimes so, you know, it's so packed. There's no place inside yeah, the house. Yeah, Some of us still stand outside the house to chit-chat mm. with people. And that's given the impression there. There's no place for them. It's not like, oh, they were rejected uh, in a sense, but there was just, it was just so filled, it was just so full that they had to go below, right? Uh, this is something interesting I found in, in one of the uh, sessions I attended is that when we look at the story and it says there was no place for them in the inn, right? Mm. We, many of us naturally assume that the them is Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, but yeah. if we read further on, we realize that the only two people referenced after that is mm. Mary and Jesus. That mm. So some uh, spiritual significance read into this is that the them is uh, mother and child themselves, la, you know. And I mean, this is just coming from a Marian uh, perspective, la, that the, this is how close Mary is. La. His, the rejection of Jesus also was a rejection of Mary, uh, you know, in a sense. So Mary is so intertwined with his life right from the beginning that she experiences all these significant events even the rejection at early on right mm. until his rejection on the cross also that she will experience it uh, the whole marian uh, uh love for her son mary's role with her son right it's so clearly intertwined that christmas i mean if we think about the christmas story right we think more of mary than we think of joseph and and mm. that's important la, because our faith does uh, uh hold our lady in quite high regards and in quite high respect and she she's someone who knows the heart of her son really well and i think uh so just as a uh someone of a strong marian devotion i think uh it's also a good time to start having a good marian devotion in our lives to kind of uh kind of know christ more mm. 
thanks for sharing with us that um, beautiful perspective on um, some bits of Marian theology. So we've gone through uh, some some bits of information about Christmas, maybe some interesting trivia. But I think um, Kenan has also helped to tie our knowledge of Christmas more to scripture and also less away from what is so steeped in contemporary culture, Santa Claus, reindeer, Christmas trees, gifts, Christmas parties. But to really focus on what is in scripture and what is um, truly the meaning of Christmas. Okay, so before we end off this podcast, um, Kino, do you have any comments, any more comments to add? <laughs> no, I just, okay, I mean, if you can, uh, I mentioned the book already earlier uh, by Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, the Infancy Narratives. Go and read that. I mean, you can also find a lot of the information I mentioned on maybe Catholic Answers Live or you can look up Dr. Taylor Marshall. These are good resources to just kind of uh, uh, listen to or keep in contact with because they try to give us the truth about the faith and, you know, some understanding that to help Catholics be deeper and always explore. I think there's so much about our faith. I mean, whatever we talked about is only just the tip of mm. the iceberg about the Christmas yeah. story and it's all its significance. Like uh, you mentioned, you know, St. Nicholas, I mean, Santa Claus or, mm. you know, the other things. These are all rooted in Christian. Why we have Christmas trees, the wreaths, all these have real significance that we didn't cover today and it's mm. worth exploring because once we have the base of Christ, right, everything else we add on. If we add on, it doesn't take away from Jesus, but we're adding it on just makes Jesus so much more, you know, makes our faith so much more. And I think uh, maybe that's a podcast for another day. Mm. Yes, yes, definitely. So to just to end off, to make a reference back to scripture, perhaps the most important thing to know about Christmas is encapsulated in these words of scripture that comes from John chapter 1, verse 14. The word was made flesh, he lived among us, and we saw his glory. The glory that is his as the only son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much to Keenan for joining us today. Thank you. For more confessions, do check out our website and Facebook page. 